Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Marissa de Los Santos at Ramsey County's Roseville Library. Over the last eight years, Marissa de Los Santos has penned three consecutive New York Times bestsellers, Love Walked In in 2006, Belong to Me in 2011, and Falling Together in 2012. She is also an award-winning poet with published work in a number of prominent journals to her credit, plus a collection of her own called From the Bones Out. In addition, De Los Santos is co-writer with her husband of the young adult time-traveling odyssey, Saving Lucas Biggs. Her newest, The Precious One, is an unforgettable tale of family secrets, lost love, and dangerous obsession. Thank you so much for coming on this beautiful evening. It's so funny, I started out um, in, in Fort Lauderdale. I live in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, and I, but I, I, my first stop was a couple days in Fort Lauderdale. And then I went to um, Wichita, and now I'm here. And then I go to Columbus, Ohio, and then I go home. And so my whole like dilemma, which stressed me out for literally weeks, I'm not kidding, was how I was going to pack a carry-on for all of these different cities. I was like, I'm going to Florida, and I'm going to Minnesota. But actually, it's pretty much been the same weather every place that I've gone, which is like perfect, blue skies. So all that stress and all those sweaters for nothing. Um, uh, this is pretty early on in, in my book tour. Um, this book came out on the 24th. And so this is, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of getting the hang of my um, shtick. Um, so if there's anything that you want, we're going to have a Q&A at the end, but as I'm speaking, if there's anything you want me to stop and go further with or that you want to hear, just raise your hand because I'm still kind of figuring out what people want to know about this book. Um, a question that I, I get, I've already gotten frequently and asked, actually got a lot before the book came out, and I think it's a great question and one that I always want to ask other writers. Um, which is, how, where did this idea come from? How did you get the idea for this book? And, um, you know, the, the, the only problem with that question is that for me, it is almost impossible to answer. Um, because there's never a kind of aha moment where, you know, I read a newspaper article and, oh, you know, this is what I need to write about or, or, or I see something happening. It's, it's more, I think, an accumulation of, of all kinds of things over a long period of time and in a kind of some very, very slender idea 
arises from it. Um, I will say that I, I, I know around the time I came up with the idea for The Precious One, I've been thinking a lot about um, second chances. And I, you know, I think it's probably my age. But I've been hearing stories from people I know. And then once you start hearing those stories, you start to notice them everywhere. But this, this idea of like a clean slate starting over, um, people walking away from jobs they've had for 20 years and doing something completely different. Um, a friend of mine from high school, for example, um, was teaching in California and then just moved to Spain and opened a restaurant. And I was like, Woody, I didn't even know you cooked. You know, I, where did this come from? Um, but, you know, new jobs, new families, moving to Mexico because you've always wanted to live there, or, you know, whatever it is. And what I started to notice about these stories is that, first of all, most of them are, are stories that are inspiring. You know, they're, 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 it's, it's a bold move. It's the rare person who can actually clean the slate and start over. Um, and also the other thing I noticed was that you, most of the time, at least the stories I was coming across, were from the perspective of the person embarking on the new life. And it occurred to me to think about what, about the stories of the people from the first life, the ones who got left behind, the ones who, who, um, who, the, who Woody, you know, his friends back in California, the people he saw every day, or the people, um, you know, whoever. And what, what is it like to be the ones who, who are left? And then that's when this idea, which it wasn't even, I mean, it can barely be called an idea because it was more of just a scenario, a sentence fragment rather than even a complete statement, which was two sisters who share a father and nothing else who don't know each other, who are strangers to each other. One is the product of, the, of their father's, her father's first marriage. Um, and the second is the product of his second marriage. And um, that's it. That's really kind of all I had to begin with. And then, um, as often, always, actually, I'm sorry, I'm touching my microphone, as always happens with, um, uh, my writing process, a character started to live inside my head, um, stayed there for a long time, and began to reveal herself to me, you know, bit by bit. And the experience of writing characters, because once they're written, um, and once the book is written, like for example, this book, book launch, um, it really feels to me like I've created people who are real to me and, ex and completely separate from me. And with a book launch, I'm thinking less about reviews and sales figures and, and all the rest as I'm thinking, you know, this, 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 these are my people going out into the world and please be nice to them. <laughs> um, you know, you don't have to love them, but just don't let them know if you hate them. Um, <clears throat> and and that's, that's my experience of it. So, what happened was that Tazy um, began, and, 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 the, and the way that I, I feel is that is not so much that this is an act of creation, because I guess intellectually I know that I am creating these characters, but 
experientially, it is not at all what's going on for me. It is more like these are people who exist, and my job as a writer is to learn them um, and, and to just uncover who they are. And at times, they're, you know, I, I will suddenly, you know, Taisy lived in my head for months and kind of acquired a full-fledged personhood over these, this, period, these period, this period of months. And you know, there were weeks when I would get whole windows that would kind of open up into her inner life. And then there were weeks when I'd get just little bits and pieces, like her hair color, or that she did ballet seriously um, into young adulthood, or you know, something about that she had a twin brother um, Marcus and you know all of these things started to grow inside my head and as I was talking about it last night it actually occurred to me that and I think I thought about this at the time you know Taisy is a ghostwriter that's one of the other things I learned about her is that she's not just a ghostwriter but she's sort of it's, it, it should be an oxymoron but she is a, some kind of a famous ghostwriter um, because she her first ghosty ended up being a celebrity, like ended up becoming a celebrity because of the memoir that Taisy wrote for her. And also be, became, her name's Trillium, and she became Taisy's best friend. But it occurred to me that, the, that at one point, Taisy describes her process as a ghostwriter, and it's sort of similar to my process as a novelist. So I thought I would just read you this little section where she talks about that. Um, I discovered that I, I had a gift for capturing people with words. Wait, capturing is wrong. More like channeling. I might have been a ghostwriter, but I was the one who was haunted. When I wrote, I was 10 times more trillium than I was myself. When I got stuck, I exercised more patience than I had maybe ever, waiting for the right question to come to me. What was the best gift you ever got as a kid? Who is your favorite March sister? When it did, I'd ask Trillium the question and her answer would unstick me, reveal the path I needed to take. Trillium's books, books sold like hotcakes, stayed on the New York Times bestseller list enough weeks to choke a goat, as Trillium liked to say. After that, I ditched the business writing, she had been a business writer, and became a ghostwriter for real. And the right question became my secret weapon, my ace in the hole. It never stopped amazing me how the tiniest fact once discovered could pop open a window with a vista-sized view of a person's inner world. How you could learn, for example, that a person had had six dogs in his lifetime, all named Boxer, even though none of them was a Boxer. And boom, there you were, standing smack in the middle of at least an acre of the man's soul. So that's kind of similar to my process, where I'm just uncovering all these little bits and pieces that, when you put them together, make up personality. And I should add that a lot of the facts that I learn about the characters will not ever show up in the books. Um, but I feel that there is no possible way to write their story without knowing all of this about them. I couldn't guess what their reactions to things would be or, or how they would speak or any of it without knowing just a, a huge amount of information about, about who they are. So as Taisy lived in my head, um, some, some facts about her started to emerge. And um, 
then some bits of story kind of started to attach themselves to her or be revealed. Um, I knew she was a ghostwriter. I knew that her family had fallen apart when she was a senior in high school and when her father um, had left the family for a much younger woman um, who was pregnant with their child. And um, Taisy calls it the combustion. Like, it, it wasn't just a split, it was just an explosion that happened in her family. And her mother, I knew she had a mother, and I knew that, she, that her mother took Taisy and her brother Marcus, um, who were about 18 at the time, uh, to live in her home state of North Carolina. They just up and left. I also eventually learned that Taisy um, left what she still, at about 35, when the book opens, con the, the person she still considers to be her one great love, this guy named Ben, her high school boyfriend. Um, so, but, but most, maybe most importantly, I understood that while Taisy knew that she had every reason in the world to despise her father, because even before he left, he was not much of a father. He was disapproving, he was cold, his kids were constantly disappointing him, even though they weren't particularly, by most standards, disappointing, especially Taisy. Um, and he was just not present most of her childhood. Um, so he's never been a great dad, and then he was a terrible dad, and then he was gone. And, but, but, the, but the thing is, she had never, ever stopped wanting him to love her, to approve of her, and really just to know her, because she feels like she's this completely unknown, unseen entity for him. Even when she was living in the same house with him, she felt that way. Um, so despite all her accomplishments, she still finds herself wanting this. And I thought I'd just read a little bit in her words um, of how she feels about it. Don't go thinking that I wasn't angry about all this. I was. In fact, I would say that I was at least as angry as Marcus, whose anger stayed red hot for years before it cooled to something hard and shiny and black. It's just that without wanting to or trying to, and for years I was deliberately trying not to, I held on to love. Or it held on to me. Not active love, not love the verb form. It was more just there, a small, unshakable thing, leftover, useless, as vestigial as wisdom teeth or a tailbone, but still potent enough so that when I heard his voice on the phone, my heart gave a tiny jump of hope that made me want to slap it. So that's Taisy, and she's evolving in my mind. And so then, of course, the next character who kind of comes up um, is Wilson, who is her father. And um, Wilson, lived for a long time in my head, and I learned a lot of information about him, but, but with Wilson, I also was very surprised by things that I learned about him in the, in the process, about his past. Um, but I, I really initially thought Wilson was going to be a much bigger character and possibly even have his own point of view. And Wilson is very important, but he just kind of sits in the middle of the book and radiates his Wilsonness and affects the people around him. But he's not as much, until the end of the book, really, he's not really an actor. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't do that much. Um, he, he's, he, he, pages will go by and we really don't see him. So that was a surprise to me, that he didn't end up being as important as I thought, or as, 
as having as much agency as a character as I thought he was going to have. Um, but one thing I knew about Wilson, I mean, he's this brilliant guy, he's a professor, he's all of these things, um, won prizes, um, extremely charming to everyone outside of his family or his first family. Um, but what I understood to be probably the central fact of Wilson's life is that he loves his daughter. Not Daisy, but his second daughter, Willow. When the book opens, Willow is 16. Um, and he, because he loves her, and truly loves her, um, he, he wants to do everything right in raising her. He feels that he did not really participate in his other, he, he turned them over to their mother and she ruined them. Um, but he is going to take, to take Willow and just do everything right, which means that he educates her at home. And she's not your typical homeschool kid. She has very little contact with people her own age. Um, and he really teaches her the things that he thinks are important and that she should know. But he's also very protective of her. And um, obviously, he's, he's trying to protect her from everything dangerous which is what we all, if, if any of you are parents, that's what we do, right? That's just normal. You protect your kids from danger. But he also wanted to protect her from everything ordinary, everything kind of common or what he viewed as common, um, all the things of the world that he believed had ruined his first set of children and in fact made them unfit to actually be his children. Um, so this is how Willow describes it. He gave me a world where everything was beautiful, noble, nutritious, and pure. A life from which everything coarse, crass, ugly, or just plain dumb had been strained out and thrown away. No television, no pop music, no magazines, no sleepovers, no high fructose corn syrup, no unsupervised internet surfing, no, God no, are you kidding, no social networking. So. This is Willow, and then after I knew Wilson and then I knew this about him, Willow emerged, and it became quickly clear to me that Willow was going to be the other voice in this book. Um, and it was really, really interesting to live inside Willow's head and to learn her, because um, she's, a, she's a quirky bird. I mean, she's, an, she's, she's 16 who's really never had a friend her own age. Her closest contact with people her own age is that um, her father is a staunch believer in you know, the life of the body and the life of the mind. So one of the things she's allowed to do where she lives as a homeschooled student is run cross country for a, for a public high school. So she gets to, and she turns out to be a really good runner and she loves that. But those people don't really become her friends. I mean, she's a little bit outside of it, they're her teammates, but they're not really her friends. So she's not, Willow was this just amazing to me, a weird combination of incredibly self-possessed, um, where she's you know, an, an incredibly worldly in some ways. She's been to Paris multiple times. She's gone to all the great museums in the world. She's, you know, she's studied with this brilliant father and has learned you know, things far beyond what most of her um, peers, if they were actually her peers, were learning. Um, but she's also kind of frighteningly naive. I mean, she's never really lived outside the walls of this kind of ivory tower that 
Wilson has built for her. Um, and so in that way, she's a character who broke my heart right, on a regular basis, because she's just so vulnerable. Um, she, she also, though, grows up extremely sure of her own specialness. You know, I mean, she's not only been raised this way, but she's been raised to believe that, that she's being raised in a far better way than anybody else and that she is kind of a superior being. And the reason she doesn't get to hang out with her, her people her age is that they're not really, they're, they're not worthy of her, you know? They're silly or stupid or petty or small, and she's not, she's none of those things. She's especially been raised to believe that her upbringing and her self and all, all, all of it is just superior to her siblings, who she doesn't think of as her siblings. She thinks of them as these sort of shadows and who were a disgrace. Um, and she's the real daughter. Um, so anyway, when I got to know Taisy, I got to know Willow, and what I realized is for this story to happen, they had to end up in each other's lives. Like when those two connected, that's where the story, that's what would, the story would rise up out of. Um, so then the question is how to get them together. They've never known each other. Taisy is all but estranged from her father. The only time she sees him or when she sort of stalks him <laughs> and finds him at like, a, uh, he's giving a lecture somewhere and she ends up in the audience or she's, it, it's very, um, just a very tenuous relationship. Um, and he, she's visited his home when Will, since Willow's birth once when Willow was a year old and it was a complete disaster. Um, so how to get them together? And you know, I mean, as a, as a writer, I feel like it's my job to love all my characters in this sort of big overarching God way. You know, I love them, I see their humanity um, and I, I recognize it and I value them for it. But I don't always like them and I certainly didn't like Wilson very much, particularly at the beginning of this book, when really never, I never liked Wilson that much, but, but I, I, I valued him and honored his humanity, but without, I mean, I would certainly not wish him as a father on anyone I know. Um, but, so it wasn't that hard for me to, to, to do what I had to do, which was to give him like a catastrophic heart attack. So he has a heart attack, he doesn't die, but he comes close and he has surgery and things don't go quite what, you know, smoothly. But anyway, he's in the early stages of recovering when to Taisy's amazement, he invites her and invites is that's not really the right word, he like summons her, because um, that's the kind of person Wilson is, to his home for an extended stay. And Taisy is completely baffled, but also she just can't help herself. She's, she, she's excited, you know, oh, maybe he's had, maybe his change of heart has led to a change of heart. You know, maybe he's realized the error of his ways. It also means that she's been invited, invited back to the town that she left 17 years ago and never, except for that one visit, never has gone back to. Um, and there's so much, history for her in that town and stuff she's worked very hard to let go of. Um, so it's a, it's a big deal for her to be asked. So this is, this is how the book opens. And this is, and it, the funny thing is, I've never, until I had to do this, read this out loud, I don't think. 
And this is all one sentence that I'm about to read to you. And it's a really, really long sentence. And if I had known that I was going to have to do this on book tour, I would have worked out a lot more before I left, because it's really exhausting to read this whole sentence. But anyway, they're not all this long. If I hadn't been alone in the house, if it hadn't been early morning with that specific fuzzy early morning quiet and a sky the color of moonstones and raspberry jam outside my kitchen window, if I had gotten further than two sips into my bowl-sized mug of coffee, if he himself hadn't called but had sent the message via one of his usual minions, if his voice had been his voice and not a dried-up flimsy pairing off the big golden apple of his baritone, if he hadn't said please, if it had been a different hour in a different day entirely, maybe, just maybe, I would have turned him down. Fat chance. He caught me at a vulnerable moment. That's true enough. But the fact is that in all my life, I have loved just three men. One of them was only a boy, so he might not even count. The other was my twin brother, Marcus. The third was Wilson Cleary, professor, inventor, philanderer, self-made but reluctant millionaire, brilliant man, breathtaking jerk, my father. So. This happens with Tazy. Meanwhile, since Wilson's heart attack, the way Wilson's heart attack impacted Willow's world was that after all these years, um, he has said to her, "Look, I can't, I can't give, I can't educate you anymore. Um, I can't do it right now, and I don't know when I will be able to. So you need to go to high school." And she's like, what? You know, this is exactly all the things you told me were petty and stupid and wrong and that school is not education and now you want me to go to high school? Um, so she's negotiating, you know, this whole kind of what, what even for the most prepared of us can be a kind of a minefield um, without any of the tools that you really, she's learned none of the strategies, none of the tools, none of the comebacks, none of the anything that you really need to have to successfully survive high school. Um, so this is, this is how she describes it. Just so we can hear a little touch of her voice. And it's a, you know, she's got a quirky voice because she's not your typical 16 year old. She's been raised by Wilson who has his own kind of you know, weird way of talking. Um, <clears throat> so here's Willow. To anyone out there who believes the way I did, that you live your life on a plane above Darwinian adaptation, step foot inside a school classroom for the first time ever at the age of 16. Except I guess I didn't actually in those first 16 pre-classroom years ever straight out think the thought, I exist on a plane above Darwinian adaptation. <laughs> even I am not that weird. But you can think things that you don't even know you think until the moment it becomes impossible to think them, until reality hits you smack in the face in the form of a high school classroom, or hallway, or cafeteria, or even, sorry to be blunt, bathroom. Good grief, the bathrooms were awful. The bathrooms were like the labyrinth of Knossos, only harder to figure out. The thing about adaptation is this, it's hard. Hard to the point of possibly impossible. Take anything. Take, say, raising your hand in class to answer a question. It sounds simple, but for someone who has never in her lifetime 
raised her hand in class to answer a question, it's ins insanely intimidating. Not just a single decision, but a sticky, complex, confidence-smashing web of decision-making. When do you raise it? Before everyone else? After? In the middle? Do you stab it into the air like Joan of Arc with her sword? You know where that got Joan. Lift it barely above shoulder level, a president taking the oath of office. Float it upward with your eyes pointed away as if your arm were a separate organi organism acting without your knowledge or consent. And then there's the wording of the answer to consider, your tone of voice, your facial expression, the entire wretched eye contact issue. So she doesn't know how to do anything. She, she, she has the wrong lunch and the wrong lunch bag and the wrong everything. And actually, the, when the first time she does raise her hand in class, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. It's a disaster. The whole thing blows up. And she says exactly the wrong thing and exactly the wrong words and uh, immediately turns you know, people against her because she comes across as just so weird. Um, but. Um, Anyway, so of course, against all of her better judgment, Taisy answers Wilson's summons. He, she, she goes, and um, I mean, of course she does, because that's where the story happens. Um, and I will just read a little bit about of, of her, how she gets there, and what happens upon her first meeting with Willow. <clears throat> Two days later, I drove the seven hours from my house to my father's with an iPod full of fortifying songs, a suitcase full of a week's worth of clothes, and a head full of Ben. Ben is her high school boyfriend. His laugh, his Yorkies, Busby and Jed, the way he and I would study for hours together without speaking, the things he taught me to like, Ovaltine, basketball, chess, the things I taught him to like, Sushi, you too, Barbara Kingsolver. The way his eyes were so dark, you could only see his pupils in the brightest sunlight. The way he read books, literally, to pieces. The night he called me in tears, the only time I ever heard or saw him cry, and told me that his mother, who had MS but refused to use a walker, had fallen down the garage steps and broken her hip. How she'd had to lie there for two hours on the cement floor until his stepfather got home. It was complete indulgence, a memory binge, a Ben Bender. After so many years of study denial, of trying to downplay, shrug off, forget, I didn't so much fall off the wagon as plunge off a cliff. I was so lost in Ben, Ben, Ben that I almost forgot that I was headed Wilsonward. It wasn't until I saw the exit for what I still thought of as my hometown, even though I tried to stop, that I remembered to worry about what waited at the end of my journey. And even then, the worry was only an annoyance, like a mosquito buzzing in the car or a bad smell. I didn't panic. I didn't feel like throwing up or turning the car around. Instead, I squared my shoulders, turned up the Decemberists, thought about the first present Ben gave me, a hand-cranked ice cream maker and a bag of rock salt, and exited. Wilson's house was on a road that had once been quiet and countrified, bordered by farms and fields, but which was now pretty well trafficked. Still, the house, a long white stucco number with a red tile roof, was set so far back from the road that it seemed to be in its own little world, bucolic and meadowy, with trees so old they were probably historic landmarks rising majestically from their pools of shadow. 
Mixed up among the old trees were newer ones, small and delicate. It wasn't until I was driving down the long, gently curving driveway that I realized that all the young trees were willows. I stopped the car midway up the drive, shut my eyes, and took some deep breaths. You are an adult, I told myself. You have a life that you love. You are happy and secure and rich in friends and family. Your mother is a jewel. Your brother thinks you're funny. All of your ex-boyfriends still like you, except Peter, but he never liked you much to begin with. You're a homeowner. You have ghost-written two international bestsellers. You have long eyelashes and good feet and a famous best friend. Jealousy can't touch you because you exist on a plane above jealousy, high above, miles, miles and miles and miles, miles and miles and miles. I whispered as I put the car in drive. Miles and miles and miles, I whispered as I put the car in park in front of the house. Miles and miles and miles, I whispered as I rang the doorbell. I heard footsteps inside the house and stopped whispering. Caro, Caro is her stepmother. Caro answered the door. Her eyes and hair looked startled, but her smile was unmistakably real. Taisy, she said, how wonderful that you're here. Then my stepmother and I were hugging, and I'm not sure, but I can't swear that I wasn't the one who started it. Maybe it will be okay, I thought. Maybe it will even be good. Hello, Eustacia, said a voice. Tazy's real name is Eustacia. The person was so impossibly tall, lithe, cool-eyed, and collected that it took a moment for me to realize three things in this order. That she wasn't a grown woman, but a girl. That she was Wilson's daughter the precious one, the one deserving of honorary trees, and that we were dressed in almost identical outfits. Cashmere sweater, tall boots, and what I swear were the same wool pants, except hers were black. Charcoal gray is much wittier, I thought, triumphantly, and instantly felt like a heel. She who is driven to comparing shades of stretch wool lives not on a plane above jealousy. <laughs> it was so petty I had to smile. Maybe because she thought I was smiling at her, Willow took a step backward, bumped into the stair rail, and flushed poor child to the roots of her hair. Hey there, Willow, I said. And this time my smile was really for her. It's been a long time. Instead of smiling back, Willow lifted her chin an inch and said, welcome to our home. My father is sleeping just now, and I think it's best if I don't wake him. Her chin was trembling but the rest of her was frozen in place. It's what saved me in the end, this sudden understanding that she was so much more afraid than I was. It's okay, I told her, but what I really meant was, it'll be okay, really it will. For a split second, and I don't think I imagined it, her eyes flashed like a stricken deer's. Then Willow pressed her lips together, gave a sharp shrug and said, fine then. Willow, said her mother, but in a swirl of perfect posture and auburn hair, Willow was gone. Um, the interesting thing about that scene, that moment, is that it's really one of those examples of a time, and I know this, this from talking to other writers, this happens to a lot of other writers, um, where my characters really did not behave the way I wanted them to behave. You know, I had this whole thing planned out. You know, I was thinking, Taisy has lived her, her, you know, for the past 17 years, jealous of this child who 
her father, who has completely rejected her, adores um, and lives with and lavishes attention on and raises by, hand, you know, by, by himself almost, by hand. And what I thought was going to happen and what I planned um, to have happen is that Taisy would see Willow and there would be a, you know, just a, 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 a terrible scene, that she would be rude to her, she's, she's eaten up with jealousy. Um, and I, instead, um, and then I would be, you know, it would be kind of interesting, I was sort of looking forward to that, because then you hear you'd have this 35-year-old successful woman who hates a child, and she'd have to kind of deal with the fact that I am a person who hates a child. You know, I'm, 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 this, is, this is, you know, grappling with that I thought would be interesting, but instead, what does Taisy do? But her immediate reaction to Willow is sympathy, and, and, and empathy, and protectiveness, which, I was not expecting and, and, and did not want. I was like, no, you are not going to be nice to her. Um, and, and I actually tried um, for some time to push Taisy in a different direction because, you know, I had my outline and I like my outline. <laughs> um, and this was not what was, was not gonna happen. But, you know, ultimately, I, I think, this idea that authors are in authority, in positions of authority, and say what's going to happen is really not right. Um, it's kind of a misnomer, this word author, because sometimes our, 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 our biggest job often is just to listen, you know, just to listen to our characters, to listen to the story um, and, and the demands it's making, and to just get out of the way you know, sort of just, um, I mean, I can't tell you over the years, the five books, and I've actually written another book with my husband, um, how many hours and days and probably weeks I have lost trying to force my characters to do what I had planned for them to do, and which is not at all what they, um, you know, that they, what, what they thought they themselves should, should do. So. Um, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting to me how, how that works. Um, the other thing that I thought, just because on the subject of, of the brain and how it works and, you know, your imagination, um, and I'll, I'll end with this little story, but, you know, it, 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 the weird thing is that I, my father, um, when I was 14, I found out that my father had had another family in the Philippines, that I had two half-brothers who were obviously older than I was. You know, he, he lived in the Philippines, he moved to the United States, my mother's American, he married her, he had us. But it turns out that, at, you know, when I was, I think it was 14 or 15, I found out that I had this other, he had this other family who was actually then my other family because these are my half-brothers. And the only reason anyone bothered to tell me and my sister this is that the older brother was coming to live with us, like in a month. <laughs> so, um, so he came, he lived with us for a year, and it was, it was, it was actually kind of a failure. It was, it was a, I guess it was kind of a disaster. Um, uh, 
you know, there was obviously a lot of kind of bitterness and anger there, but it was also just the case that my father didn't know this kid very well either, you know, and um, none of us did, and he was really, really different. My sister and I were just this, you know, straight and narrow, good students, goody, I mean, we were, we were nauseatingly, you know, good. And Raul was older, and he was, you know, he had been raised, what's interesting about the Philippines is they have this idea of this, you know, extended family, a, a, a concept of family that's much larger than ours. So my question to my dad was not, why didn't you tell me this before? And, you know, I thought of those things later, but I said, how could you leave your kids? And he said, well, you know, it's different in the Philippines. If you have a chance to come to the United States, you come to the United States, you send money. I sent money back. And the thing is, these two boys and their mother had, had lived their entire lives after my dad left with his family, his parents, his sisters, and kind of a family compound, um, which sounds very glamorous, like Kennedy-esque. It, it is not. They're middle-class people in the Philippines, which there aren't that many of them, I guess. But um, it, it, that's, that was the situation. And they had been spoiled so much by all these doting aunts and been allowed to pretty much do whatever they wanted. So my dad was not ready for this, you know? I mean, he was so, none of us were. And it ended up being kind of a disaster. And Raul ended up moving to California after that year. But the whole thing was, you know, one day, and this was after the galleys had come out. So when you publish a book, um, they make a galley, which kind of looks like a paperback version of the book that they send to booksellers and they send to, to media and stuff just to kind of generate buzz before the actual book comes out and to line things up for you. And so I had the galley, so it was pretty far along in the process and I was kind of looking through it and I just like put it down, came downstairs and, and said to my husband, you know what, we are my father's second chance family. Like, I." And Willow. I mean, obviously I'm not, but, but you know, I am. And what's the, the strangest thing? So my husband like, looks at me and is like, so you're just thinking of this now? <laughs> like, and, you, and I was like, yeah, I never thought of it before. You know, I, I wrote this book. I was writing Taisy's story. I was writing Willow's story. It was not. And, um, but obviously, you know, it, it, that was there in my head, um, which maybe goes back to the original question was where do ideas come from? But it's just so interesting and mysterious to me um, answering, trying to answer that question because if that was there and that was part of it, I was completely unaware. I didn't think about it, I didn't, I just um, wrote the book and it was only afterwards that I was like, hey, you know what? There's some similarities here. And, and, and you know, of course everyone's like, you're crazy. My dogs, by the way, um, are in the book. And uh, I didn't own dogs until I wrote this book. So there are never dogs. There were never dogs in my book. I wasn't particularly a dog person. And then um, we got two dogs because my daughter begged for like 10 years, um, starting at birth until she was 10 years old, she begged for a dog. But at her 10th birthday, we gave her these two dogs. Um, and I, I mean, my relationship to them is by some um, people's estimation pathological. Like, I, I'm obsessed with my dogs. I love my dogs. But I write with a dog on my lap. My dogs weigh four, Huxley weighs four pounds. He sits on my lap while I write. And Finney 
is our big dog, and he weighs eight pounds, and he sleeps in his bed uh, on the floor, and for hours, they just stay with me. They were here through the whole writing of this book, through the whole writing of Saving Lucas Biggs, and the next book that we, my husband and I wrote together, which is called Connect the Stars. And, and so I had to put them in the book, but everyone always asks me, okay, who were you, did you model your characters on? Like, what are the, who are the real life people who match up with your characters? And my answer has always been, they don't. There's nobody. You know, these, they, there's, I steal bits and pieces maybe from people, but there's no character in any book that I've ever written that matches up with a person in the real world until my dogs. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Marissa De Los Santos and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Marissa De Los Santos always knew she wanted to be a writer. This is a funny thing. like. This was years ago, when I, after my, maybe my first book, and I, I got asked that question a lot, and I said, yes, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, and in truth, it was really the only thing I was actually good at. So, I mean, I was, I, was, I was a good student, I was good at a lot of things, but it was the only thing that really felt natural to me. Um, but my sister at some point is like, you know, I'm reading these interviews with you, and she had maybe gone to a reading I did in, in North Carolina, and she said, you know, you never said that. Like, you never said you wanted to be a writer. And I asked my mom, she's like, no, you never, you never said you wanted to be a writer. You wanted to be like a horse trainer, even though you'd never ridden a horse. You, wa you wanted to be a ballerina. You wanted to be, you know, you wanted to be, and then you wanted to be a journalist at one point, maybe. But you really never said you wanted to write books. And it occurred to me that, you know, um, I think part of it was that, like, I never really believed that writers existed. I mean, I knew that intellectually that they did. But I'm such a reader. And as, like a, as a child, especially, I was such a huge reader. And as a reader, as a kid, those characters were not something that somebody sat at a desk and made up and typed out. You know, they were real. Scout Finch was a person. Nobody made Scout Finch up. I mean, with all due respect to Harper Lee, God bless her. But like, you know, I didn't believe it. I don't think I believed in that. Um, and so it didn't really occur to me that it was a job that you could, <laughs> that you could do until I was older, you know, for a long time. Um, so no, I guess not. But then when I was in college, I took, um, I started off as a poet. And, you know, I took a creative writing workshop um, with a poet named Michael Ryan. and very quickly decided that I, I wanted to keep doing this. And I was kind of toward the end of my, you know, it was in my fourth year of college. So I slapped together, you know, a, a, an application, um, you know, a collection of, of poems that I'd written and sent them out and went to grad school for that. And working with other writers and being in a situation where there were actually physical other writers who had published things out in the world gave me the idea like, okay, maybe I can, you know, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is what I should be doing. And um, so I was a poet first, and then, and, and I think I would have written a novel at any point, but I didn't have any ideas for a novel, and then I did. Um, and so then I wrote one. But um, in my adult life, I guess that's what I thought I would be. 
Our next question is whether or not De Los Santos misses her characters after she has finished writing their story. I do. There is a mourning period. And even now, I mean, the great thing is that then you, you know, this happens, you miss them intensely. And then you go through the revision process, which is not really the same. I mean, you, you work with your editor, but it's being with them again, but not in the same way. But it's really kind of when you go back and like when I do stuff like this, that I really feel cl you know close to them again, or like I have them in my life again. But yeah, I miss them intensely. Um, and my first book actually, um, I missed them so much that I just had to write another book with those same characters because, which, which you know, incidentally, if you're if you're planning to be a writer at any point, um, you know, I, the way it works is you submit a book, it gets accepted even when it's completely revised. There's like a year before it comes out. So I started writing Belong to Me, my second book that is sort of a sequel to the first book before the first book came out, which is a really really bad idea. Because I was an unknown writer. This was my first novel. If everyone hated those characters, you really don't want another book hot on the heels with the same characters. But the truth is, that was my only story. You know, I always only have one story. And so that was my, that was my story. And I was so uh, happy to be back in, in their company and to be, um, you know, learning more about who they'd become since I'd been away, and you know, I just and what's great is that I'm working on a book now. I'm in the early, very early stages of it, but it continues. It, it it's a third book about those characters. Although it takes there's there's some young characters in the first two books, particularly this girl named Claire, who I think is 11 in the first book, and I think she's 14 at the end of the second book. And she's like 22 in the new book, just graduated from college. So we, I get to, I, I'm, I'm just honored and thrilled that I get to spend time with them again and find out who they are um, now, like who Claire is as a grown woman. Because, you know, it's, it, I, I don't know, it just feels, it, it's just very exciting for me to think about that and to, and to you know, because I've missed them all this time. This audience member notes that Marissa de los Santos seems strongly bonded to so many of her characters. Are there any characters that she didn't form an attachment to? Well, I become especially bonded to the, to the main characters and to the secondary characters. So for example, in this book, Caro, who is, as you didn't see, we didn't see very much of her in the parts that I read, but I became incredibly invested in Caro, and she became very real to me. And she was actually a character who surprised me all the time. I mean, I thought I knew a lot about her up front, but then as the book, the thing about Caro is she's an artist. She's a glass artist. She makes things out of glass. And she's what I think most people would describe as flaky. I mean, she's kind of, she's not altogether there in all, all the time. You know, she's thinking about other things. Um, and she seems to be an airhead, and, and she seems dismissible. And so it's kind of easy for, for particularly for Taisy to dismiss her, because Taisy has a lot of reasons to not like her or to resent her. Um, but even though she seems sort of fluffy, what I realized as I wrote is that she has this tremendous pull on the people around her, and she has this effect. And and there are very real reasons that 
Wilson ended up with her. Um, and she has this kind of effect on Wilson that he probably doesn't even realize. But she, she's someone who, in her very quiet way, makes things happen. And I didn't know that about her when I started. You know, I, 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 I started. So I became really invested in her, in Ben, um, who is Taisy's ex-boyfriend, and in Luca, who is, becomes Willow's like only friend at school. Um, and, and other characters, I became, if there's a very secondary character, like a tertiary or, you know, what, I don't even know what the word would be for a fourth. Um, but anyway, if, if, if just incidental characters who show up very briefly, I'm not as bonded to them. But to the main ones, um, they definitely feel like real people to me. This question is a favorite among Club Book audience members. What is Marissa De Los Santos reading right now? Well, I have this friend who is a bookseller in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and I did an event there. Her name's Ann Miriam Budner, which is such a cool, her name's Ann Miriam, A-N-M-I-R-Y-A-M. And she is great because you just go in and say, okay, what, what, what should I read? And she's very bossy. Um, about books, but I appreciate people who are bossy about books, but she also, she's not going to recommend the book that everybody's reading. She, she rec- she's like, oh, you know, this or this. So I'm reading this book right now called, a, I think it's called A Reunion of Ghosts, um, that she recommended to me, and so I took it on, on tour with me, and it is so good. Um, it's about these three middle-aged sisters in, um, in New York, and, but it's also about their whole family. And they have this family legacy of suicide, like all these suicides in their family. But it's also the story behind all the different family members. They're going back to like World War, may go back as far as World War I. But it, you know, all these different characters and, and, and um, how these sisters kind of feel cursed. But it's so funny. It, they, they're, and there's so much wordplay. And she knows I'm really a sucker for like, puns and metaphors and, you know, just the kind of the quirky things that language can do. So I'm reading that right now. And it's really good. I would recommend it. Um, And what else? You know, I, 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 when I, I went on vacation recently, my kids now go to two different schools and they have different spring breaks. So I took my daughter on spring break and, and before I left, I said, okay, I, I haven't had a whole lot of time for reading. I put on my Facebook page, recommend books. And so all these people recommended all these books. And I kind of, I kind of you know, added up all the, all the recommendations. And this book, The Nightingale, by Kristen Hanna, um, got the most votes. So I'm like, OK, well, I'll, I'll, re- I'll read this book. And I didn't really know what to expect. I had never read Kristen Hanna. I mean, I'm probably the only woman in the world who'd never read Kristen Hanna before. But I also feel like this book may be a departure for her. Like, I, I mean, just get the sense I get looking at her other books, which are much more contemporary, right? Am I right? But anyway, I, I took it, and we went to the Dominican Republic, and I'm reading this, and it's really great storytelling. It's just really good, you know, and good. 
And the characters, again, like those characters really come alive, these two sisters. Um, and I love books about sisters. So these two sisters dur during the French, uh, the, the French occupation during World War II. Um, and at the end of the book, I'm with my daughter who's just turned 13, nobody else. And, and um, I'm like crying on the beach in, in the Dominican Republic and my daughter's like, oh my God. Like, you have to stop, mom. You have to stop. Like, we don't even, we don't know anyone here, and you're still embarrassed? She's like, yes, you have to stop. But anyway, so that was a book, that was just a book that I unexpectedly loved because I just, you know, kind of took, a, just polled people, and, you know, they, they told me what to read. Our last question of the night comes from a woman who mentions that De Los Santos has a rather distinctive writing style when it comes to narrative voices. How did she settle upon her alternating character narrative style? This is the first book I've written, apart from the book I wrote with my husband, but he wrote half the chapters, so it's a different thing, that has two first-person narrations. In, in Love Walked In, Cornelia, the adult character, is first-person, and Claire is third. But it's such a narrow third. So we don't see anything or know anything or, or, or have or are privy to any information that Claire isn't privy to. You know, we, we see it all through this, her perspective. Um, and then Belong to Me was, was also, it was also multiple perspectives. There was um, Cornelia came back. There was a kid named Dev who was, um, this kind of physics genius kid named Deb. And then there was, um, who, who, who else was there? Um, La uh, no, Piper, who is this kind of, Lake's in it, but she doesn't have her own perspective. This kind of queen bee, suburban queen bee person. So it's these three people, but only Cornelia was first person. And the other two were third. But again, it was the same kind of third. And then in Falling Together, it was all third. There was no first person voice. And it alternated between Penn, this female character, and Will. But Will had far fewer and shorter chapters. It was mostly Penn's story, but that, that was all third. Um, but I think it comes across that way because I do feel like when you're, even when you're doing third, voice is really important. And the, and the way so much of voice has to do not just with the specific language it's used, but with the way someone's mind works and the things they notice and the things they fail to notice and, and just the associations that they make. And so in that way, those, that third person was really as intimate as the first person. Um, and then the book I wrote with my husband is two first-person narrations, but we alternated chapters. So I wrote the girl chapters, and he wrote the boy chapters. And we used that structure for both books that we wrote, a 13-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl. Um, so, yeah, but the multiple perspective thing, it just seems to be me to be how I think about story. I don't, I mean, I, I'm not saying I couldn't write a book that was all from the perspective of one person, and in fact, I had this idea in Florida while I was there for some time in the future for a, like a young adult, like a teen 
book. And that one, the way it seems to me at this moment is that it might just be one first person narration the whole way through. Um, or third person, I'm not sure, but if it's third, it would be, again, that really intimate third. Um, and, and, and I don't know why, because I certainly read a lot of books that are just straight third person. I read omniscient third, you know, and love. It's just, it's, and I read books that are not multiple perspectives. So, uh, you know, but what seems to be my sense of story and the way I just naturally, organically tell stories is through these multiple perspectives. Um, but thank you so much for coming. This, this was really fun, thanks. Well, that's it from our Roseville Library event with Marissa De Los Santos in Ramsey County. Catch our next Club Book event with John Ronson at 6.30 p.m. Monday, April 13th at Washington County's R.H. Stafford Library in Woodbury. John Ronson is among Britain's most prolific journalists and documentarians, and a household name throughout that country. Ronson's most recent book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, offers a witty but eye-opening look at the widespread but little-studied social phenomenon of public shaming. Meet John Ronson, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle at clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, The St. Paul Hotel, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.